Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, um, for, uh, Candace, for um, welcoming everyone. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop when the diagnosis is cancer of unknown primary, guidelines for care. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and all of your interest in this program and our wonderful speakers that we have over 392 people on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Costa Rica, Egypt, Lebanon, Turkey, Philippines, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and um, we are delighted to have you all with us today. Uh, today's program was made possible by an educational grant from Biotheronostics, Inc., and I really want to thank them, really, for their support of this really important program. And we hope to be able to offer this program more often because we know that many of you would like to hear more about, about, um, about this um, cancer of unknown problem. We have wonderful speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gauri Varatachari, and Dr. Varatachari is Professor, Department of Gastrointestinal Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Varatachari is going to address overview of CUP, cancer of unknown primary, diagnosis and clinical evaluation, and molecular diagnostic technologies. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Varatachari. Thank you, Dr. Messner. So over the next 10 minutes or so, I would like to discuss the overview, evaluation, and some diagnostic technologies beyond standard pathology. So cancer of unknown primary, also referred to as just unknown primary in short, or CUP, C-U-P, is one of the 10 most frequent cancers worldwide and represents about 3 to 5% of all cancers. We think about 70 to 75,000 patients probably present with unknown primary in the U.S. And to put it in perspective, pancreatic cancer is about 42,000 new patients every year in the United States. The definition of unknown primary is presence of metastases, which means spread, without an identified primary cancer site. So this means that there is spread of cancer to a site that's distant from where it may have originated, and the tests show that this spread is seen but not where the cancer started. Therefore, for most patients, it is stage four at presentation. So to reiterate, for a cancer to be called an unknown primary, it needs to be a biopsy-proven cancer where the anatomic site of the original cancer remains unidentified after a directed thorough search for the primary cancer. But before I discuss the clinical evaluation, I just want to digress for a minute or two and mention a point about the biology. So patients often ask us, where is the primary cancer and will we find it during the workup or course of treatment? The genetic basis for tumors to present as unknown primary remains unclear today. One hypothesis suggests that the primary tumor either regresses spontaneously after seeding the metastases, or it may be so small that today we cannot detect it with the tests we have. An alternative hypothesis is that the primary tumor may be kept in check due to the host immunity, maybe some chemicals that are secreted locally, but then some cells escape and they spread to organs that are a rich soil for these seeds to grow. It is hard to study these hypotheses given that we do not have an animal model that can simulate this scenario, so it's difficult to understand the biology very well. In about 2 to 4% of patients who've had a thorough workup initially, we do see a primary cancer show up months or even years after their original cancer diagnosis. We have certainly seen it, but it's not very common. So to shift gear and talk a bit about diagnosis and evaluation. A, stand -up workup, a standard workup for unknown primary includes a thorough history and physical examination to start with. A physician has to consider the patient's age, risk factors, exposures, and another important aspect of history is the family history of cancers. Also, information on past biopsies and past surgeries is very helpful. 
a thorough physical examination, including where needed, a rectal exam, breast exam, is necessary despite patient's lack of symptoms. The diagnostic tests include blood tests, CT scans, and evaluation of the cancer tissue, which is biopsy of the most accessible site. The blood tests include um, CBC, which is just looking at whether the patient is anemic, what are the counts, liver kidney tests, and directed tumor markers. Tumor markers are proteins that are shared in the blood, and they can be nonspecific, so we have to be careful what, what it's telling us, except perhaps a PSA ordered in men to rule out prostate cancer. But sometimes these tests do help us follow response to therapy. Let's talk about biopsy of the most accessible cancer site. It is really important to get adequate material, preferably from a core needle biopsy. This tissue is then subjected to a light microscopic examination uh, by a pathologist. And on microscopy, majority of the unknown primary cancers are adenocarcinoma, about 60% of them. 5% are squamous cell cancers. And the remaining 30 to 35%, light microscopy is less helpful, and it comprises of some poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, carcinomas, and undifferentiated cancers, which means that it is more difficult to determine the cancer type under the microscope. And a very small percentage of unknown primaries are neuroendocrine cancers. So after this test, the pathologist then proceeds to use additional stains on the tissue, on those slides, to help differentiate the cancers and see if they can help distinguish the originating organ. These stains are used to differentiate a breast cancer type from a lung or a colon cancer. Unfortunately, it's very black and white in about 25% of patients and more in the gray zone as to where it could have come from in about 75% of patients. But these stains do guide us to make therapy decisions. So it is important to have adequate tissue to do these tests because the pathologist needs anywhere from 7 to 10 slides to make these calls, sometimes less, sometimes more. And the communication between the clinician and pathologist is absolutely essential. No stain is 100% specific, and one has to avoid overinterpretation. So while the testing of the tissue is going on, in parallel or just before that, a patient has usually undergone a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and sometimes a chest X-ray with it. Women get mammography, sometimes just within a year of the cancer diagnosis, or a repeat test is necessary if there's a high suspicion of cancer. And with increasing availability of sophisticated tests like PET scans and endoscopies, the team has to decide what is the extent of workup that is warranted for each patient and to see how each additional test will impact the choice of therapy and patient's quality of life. We do not do PET scans on everybody. PET scans are helpful in a certain group of patients, especially those who present with swollen lymph nodes in the neck with squamous cancer in some situations where a surgery is being considered as a part of definitive therapy, and a PET scan can tell us if there's any other areas of cancer, in patients who have allergy to iodine, and when bones are involved. So determination of patients' performance status, that is their sense of well-being, their nutrition, their comorbid illnesses, and cancer-induced complications, all that information is essential and will impact treatment planning. A few words on diagnostic, molecular diagnostic technologies, and some of this will, may overlap with Dr. Greco's comments on therapy approaches. So at a very high level, there are two types of molecular tests that we may use to select therapies for our patients with unknown primary. One kind of test is called a tissue of origin test. This test attempts to identify a putative primary cancer by measuring the differential expression of genes that are related to a cell type or a cell process. And these genes are differently expressed in different tumor types. So we use these tests to tell us where the cancer may be originating from and match that up with patient's pathology and radiology data. Another type of test is called next generation sequencing test. And that looks at the tumor, the cancer tissue DNA, and gives us data on which mutations are present in the tumor. Sometimes this too may suggest a primary cancer because some mutations may be more common in some cancers than others. But these newer tests do help us at times when we are at crossroads where therapies differ and we have to make a decision based on tests that may be necessary beyond the standard stains to plan first, second, or third line therapy. 
So in summary, I believe our patients do need to be reassured that physicians have a treatment plan even without a known primary. And the imaging, the, the testing of the tissue uh, can take up to two weeks since it does take a bit more detective work to finalize a treatment plan for unknown primary. But we've made progress in the last two decades with diagnosis and treatments, and some of the treatments that we have seen in known cancers impacts our patients with unknown primary cancers and helps us personalize therapy for our patients. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Prachachari. That was really outstanding and just an excellent summary for everyone and really um, really set the stage for this entire program today. So thank you. And I know there will be questions during the Q&A um, for, for you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. F. Anthony Greco. And Dr. Greco is co-founder of the Sarah Cannon Research Institute, Medical Oncologist, Tennessee Oncology. And Dr. Greco is going to address the important role of clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, and the multidisciplinary, the multidisciplinary approach to treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Greco. Well, thank you, Dr. Misner. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you and others listening today about this subject. I'd like to hit uh, or talk about some uh, areas, just, just a few areas, and emphasize certain points that I think are important for patients and and their physicians. First, uh, as Dr. Varadachari mentioned, uh, CUP, or cancer of unknown primary, is not a single cancer. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a description of, of the way patients present with metastatic or spread of cancer. And as she mentioned, we cannot uh, define or find an anatomical primary site. We're not sure where the cancer is coming from. We know that this represents more than 30 different types of cancer. She gave, uh, Dr. Varadachari mentioned some of the theories about how this happens, and we're, we're uncertain uh, how this happens, but it's almost certainly related to some acquired genetic abnormality in the cancer cells. In fact, most cancers are related to this, and this, this puzzle is just coming together. So knowing that we're dealing with multiple types of cancers, uh, one has to keep in mind that cancers are not treated all the same. Breast cancer, which is metastatic or spread, and when we know it's breast cancer, is treated much differently than kidney cancer or colorectal cancer or many others. So the, one of the keys in patients who have an unknown primary cancer is to determine to the best of our ability what that cancer is. As she also mentioned, the treatment for many cancers has improved somewhat remarkably really in the last decade. So uh, we need to know what type of cancer a patient has when we, when we call them unknown primary cancer. Fortunately, we can often determine this by a biopsy of one of the metastatic sites in combination with the way the patient presents, and not only that, the gender of the patient. So we, the way the patient presents, where the disease is located, the pathology, the standard pathology, as Dr. Varadachari mentioned, with these important immunostains that pathologists now routinely do, can often give us, when we use all this information together, uh, a, a reasonable idea of what type of cancer the patient has, sometimes uh, quite specifically. Other instances, probably at least half the patients, perhaps a little more, even after all that is done, we still are uncertain. Here is where the molecular testing can be valuable. She mentioned the two types of testing. The first I call, in general, a molecular cancer classifier assay. This uh, looks at the cancer tissue, and uh, there are several available. Uh, and it can actually give us, based on the molecular profile, uh, a, a good idea of what the cancer is, tell us what the cancer is, even though we are not sure where it originally started. When we put all this together, then we would have a better idea on how to treat the patient. So this is critical. Some of the studies that have been done 
both uh, retrospective, where you look back, patients are treated a certain way, and prospective, where you actually design the treatment and give the patients, as you see them, certain therapies, have been very helpful in validating not only the usefulness of the immunohistochemical stains that the pathologists use, and probably more importantly in recent uh, years, the molecular cancer classifier assays that I mentioned. It looks as though they are valid, accurate about 90% of the time, uh, which is um, very helpful when you realize that many tests in medicine are not 100% accurate. When you combine that accuracy with other factors, including the uh, sites of metastasis and standard pathology, the gender of the patient, uh, we can often uh, know uh, fairly accurately where the cancer is co coming from. And we can treat the patient according to the cancer they have rather than the nonspecific diagnosis of CUP. Years ago, we couldn't determine what type of cancer most CUP patients had. Therefore, we just developed shotgun-type treatments that would cover some of the cancers. Interestingly enough, this is still considered standard by many oncologists, even though in probably 90-plus percent of patients, we can determine fairly accurately what type of cancer they have and actually treat them for that type of cancer. There is some data now evolving and some already published that highly suggest that patients can do better when uh, treated specifically rather than with shotgun therapy. So this is very important. Major areas of research which are now uh, being uh, undertaken for these patients include, uh, as Dr. Varadachari mentioned, another form of molecular testing known as next generation sequencing. This testing shows molecular alterations in the cancer cells. This is universal in cancer. We haven't figured it all out yet, but there are a lot of changes that lead to cancer growth, and we can if we find these genetic mutations, sometimes there are drugs which can block the effects of those genetic changes and actually slow down the cancers. This is routinely done now in lung cancer, in colorectal cancer, in breast cancer, and there's no reason to believe that if we diagnose an unknown primary cancer, for instance, with lung cancer, that we could use the same approach uh, looking for those genetic abnormalities, matching the genetic abnormalities with certain treatments that we have. These are known as match studies, and there are several of these ongoing now that are important for many solid tumor patients, including cup patients. Uh, the last area I want to touch upon is immune stimulatory treatment. This is considered one of the most important and exciting areas of treatment just in this last year. There are drugs on the market now that can put patients in remission, increasing their quality of their life and length of their life with lung cancer, with kidney cancer, uh, coming up uh, with bladder cancer, probably with several others. So these immune stimulatory drugs if a patient is diagnosed with one of these cancers, one can certainly consider a clinical trial uh, in a cup patient who's, for instance, diagnosed with an, a lung cancer, uh, can be considered for these important immunostimulatory drugs. So I believe that we're making progress here. We can diagnose and feel confident about the type of cancer a patient has. And then more importantly, we can treat them specifically for the type of cancer they have rather than using broad-spectrum shotgun-type therapies, which only help a few patients. I appreciate the opportunity of talking to you today. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Greco, for adding really a lot more to this call and, and bringing in a lot of the details of, of care and, and treatment options for people. So thank you so much. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Keith Eaton. And Dr. Eaton is Associate Professor, Medical Oncology Division, University of Washington School of Medicine, Clinical Research Division, Associate Member, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And Dr. Eaton is going to address pain and symptom management, follow-up care plan, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure to turn this program now over to Dr. Eaton. Thanks very much uh, for this opportunity. Um, so much of what I'm going to be talking about is actually uh, appropriate to all cancers and specifically to cancer of unknown primary. I was first going to talk about uh, communication. 
So the, the relationship between a cancer patient and their oncologist is probably the most important doctor-patient relationship that uh, patients will have during their lifetime. And um, typically, I think of the relationship as not just a relationship with the patient, but with their entire family or caregiver network. When you go to your appointment with your oncologist, it's important uh, to bring uh, someone else, if you can, a listener, someone to uh, another set of ears to hear what's going on. And um, if that's not possible, you can take notes or potentially even record your conversation. It's oftentimes difficult to retain the information uh, that uh, happens during an office visit because much of it is often very emotionally charged. Um, it's important to share information both ways and to be uh, forthcoming with your doctor regarding what your um, goals and personal beliefs are as well as the kind of symptoms you're having. Uh, you should make clear to your uh, physician what kind of preferences you have about communications. Some patients like a lot of details, others don't. Some of my patients like to look at their scans, others don't want to see them at all. So it's important to let your physician know what it is that you want out of the visit. It's also important to try to understand your health and your health care. Uh, many patients are, uh, should um, have a good understanding of what, what all their other medical problems are. Do they have heart disease, diabetes, because all of these things will influence uh, their care. It's important to know what medicines you're taking. And when you see other doctors other than your primary oncologist, you should let your oncologist know in any outside tests that have been done. You should feel free to ask questions, and actually many of my patients bring questions in. That being said, it's often important to prioritize what are your most important questions. You should understand the intent of your treatment. What is, what's the purpose of treatment? What are the side effects? What should you watch for? And what should uh, prompt a call to your physician? Um, I encourage patients to research uh, their cancers, but uh, sometimes research on the Internet is a uh, challenging thing. You can find all sorts of things, and it's really hard to know uh, what is a reliable source and what is not. Uh, ultimately, um, uh, I think the important thing is to find a physician that you trust and trust them. You can run by things that you found uh, on the Internet or through other sources with them, but it's important to have a guide uh, during this process. Um, sometimes uh, patients uh, seek out second opinions, and um, I think that uh, should be encouraged. Uh, oftentimes, the diagnosis of unknown primary is um, a very unsettling thing. You know, it, it's one thing to be told you have cancer, and that's very devastating, but uh, patients oftentimes have a really uh, hard time getting around this concept that uh, sometimes uh, medicine is just, uh, in the medicine profession, is not able to put a name on exactly what it is other than the label of unknown primary. When you do seek out uh, care from uh, uh, second opinions or other physicians, it's important uh, to be clear on who your primary care doctor is and to avoid uh, fragmented care. Um, you should be comfortable being an advocate for yourself or if you have a, a caregiver or someone who comes to your visit, they should feel comfortable advocating for you. Uh, it's important to write down what instructions you have and, and how to uh, contact your providers if you have symptoms and to report those symptoms earlier. One of the other things uh, that I wanted to touch on is communication with your larger community of friends. Oftentimes when uh, a patient has cancer, the, the task of communicating with all of their friends and relatives can be very daunting. And what my recommendation is is to kind of have a point person or someone that can communicate, you know, what happened at this last visit. Because for a cancer patient, reliving that every time and the retelling of it can be uh, quite exhausting. And some patients uh, actually do blogs, and this can be very helpful. So that uh, is what I wanted to talk about with communication. Next, I wanted to turn to pain and symptom management. Uh, an oncologist uh, has two tasks. One is treatment of the tumor. And uh, more importantly is the treatment of the patient as a whole. So oftentimes our, our, our focus is on what kind of chemotherapy we're going to give or what can we give to shrink or uh, make the tumor uh, disappear. Um, but uh, just as important is how the patient is feeling and um, 
their symptom burden. Um, so in, in patients with advanced disease, we oftentimes focus on prolonging the length of life and quality of life. And treating the cancer is oftentimes important in, to this, but just as important is the attention to what we term supportive care. Uh, one of the aspects of uh, supportive care is managing the side effects of treatment. Um, oftentimes, uh, chemotherapy or these new, newer targeted drugs have uh, unique side effects uh, that need to be uh, looked for and treated promptly. A common side effect of many treatments are gastrointestinal side effects such as nausea and vomiting, and we have very effective treatments for these. Many patients with cancer uh, suffer uh, from pain. It's important to understand what the pain is coming from. This can be done by taking a history, looking at the patient's scans. Sometimes uh, certain pain syndromes will be uh, amenable to treatment with some sort of local therapy, such as radiation therapy. And then often we're uh, treating patients with uh, analgesics, uh, so-called painkillers, such as opioids. And this can often be done by the primary oncologist. Sometimes when patients have very complex pain or uh, uh, difficult to manage uh, pain, uh, they can be referred to outside specialists. Um, and when treating pain, uh, constipation is often a problem, and this needs to be managed very uh, diligently. Uh, many patients with uh, cancer have uh, bone metastasis, and uh, we have specific drugs that can help uh, reduce the risk of having complications of those. Uh, depression and anxiety are common uh, in patients with cancer, and uh, these can be treated with uh, counseling or uh, medications, and it's important to address these as these significantly affect uh, quality of life. Other symptoms, such as shortness of breath, uh, uh, have specific treatments as well. Uh, many times patients uh, are uh, focused on nutrition and weight loss uh, can be a problem. There are uh, some medications which can help modestly with this, uh, but oftentimes uh, meeting with a nutritionist uh, can be helpful to help um, understand what kind of foods are best to eat. Now, all of these things I uh, talked about can uh, be managed by the patient's primary oncologist, but uh, what is uh, a newer Approach to this is uh, what's called the palliative care team, uh, which are available in some centers. These are people who are really focused entirely on uh, the business of supporting the cancer patient uh, uh, and less so on the, the cancer itself. Uh, there's evidence from lung cancer that uh, early involvement uh, in the course of uh, patients uh, with a cancer can lead to better outcomes and quality of life. Um, finally, I'm going to end with uh, the follow-up care plan. So we talked about uh, potential treatments. Um, follow-up care in uh, cancer in general is a rather uh, empiric uh, business. There's, there aren't really clear guidelines on uh, what to do, and cancer of unknown primary being uh, less common, this is uh, very much the case. But typically, uh, for patients with ongoing uh, needs, uh, I try to see them uh, monthly or as their uh, symptoms uh, dictate. For patients who've been treated with uh, curative intent, uh, regular visits, perhaps every uh, three to six months with uh, history and physical and uh, potentially imaging uh, determined by clinical need is uh, recommended. Um, so with that, I will end, and uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Eden. That was excellent and really just so informative to everyone. And I think many times that, that whole issue of the communication with the um, healthcare team is so people often um, need help with that. And I think coming from you, it, it, it makes it so much more powerful to hear um, some of the things that people can do to get the kind of care that they need. So thank you so much. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is um, Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she's the older adult program coordinator at Cancer Care. And she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, as Dr. Messner said, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I work with many people who are diagnosed and their loved ones. You know, we've been talking today about the unique needs of uh, dealing with a diagnosis of unknown primary. 
and really how you can manage your care uh, and improve your quality of life. And I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that uh, care and quality of life and how cancer care can be a part of that network. So a little about us, we're a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally and also online nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. Um, we provide practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, and also provide some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers really are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family or friends, really the support network. We're trained to help patients and their loved ones tackle uh, problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and the overall psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process. And I actually consider it to be an important part of treatment, which I know Dr. Eaton definitely touched on when he was speaking. As you know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire support network. Asking for help, uh, advocating for yourself, as Dr. Eaton said, um, by reaching out, sharing what's happening, joining a support group, contacting a social worker can really help and actually is a huge sign of strength. One of the things I'd like for you to take home with you is that you do not have to do this on your own. You don't have to walk the path alone. Joining a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. With individual counseling, you really have a space that's just yours to voice any of the concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And I find the connections help lessen the isolation you may be experiencing or as a caregiver you may be experiencing. And also the feeling well emotionally helps you better uh, manage the diagnosis. And again, I consider it to be a part of treatment. So I want to tell you a little bit about the services we have now that might be helpful for you. At this time, we are offering a telephone support group, and it's a general patient support group as well as a telephone caregiver support group. We have both of those also face-to-face. Uh, in the New York area. And then we also have a number of online support groups for both patients and caregivers. If you're interested in any of those services, also if you're interested in the individual counseling, please call our HOPE line. And it's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. You can also find all of this information on our website, which is www cancercare.org. And I actually recommend visiting our website. It's very comprehensive. There's a lot of information on there, not only about support, but also just on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis, treatment, and different ways of coping as you go through this, whether you're a, a patient or a caregiver. We've learned a lot from today's program. There's been a lot of wonderful information, but it's a lot to digest. I just want you to know that we're here um, to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, don't hesitate at all to contact us. And lastly, as I said earlier, please remember that you do not have to do this alone. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thanks so much, Ms. Kelly. That was excellent and really very informative about our services. So thank you so much. And, um, and now we have time for questions. So we have a lot of time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for that. And I'm going to ask Candice to bring all of our speakers on board. And, she, and Candice will explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we do not get your questions, I will give you directions as to how to get all your questions answered as we get closer to the end of the call. So um, Candice? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Mr. Emil F. Your line is now open. 
Okay, this is a long question. If someone has had cancer previously and supposedly cured of it after 15 years and then develops cancer of unknown primary later on, is it safe to assume that it could be metastatic cancer from the initial cancer diagnosis with different gene markers and be treated as such? Well, that's an excellent question, Emil. Thank you, and good to have you on the call. Um, uh, Dr. Greco, do you want to address that question? Okay, sure. It is possible, but it depends on what the previous cancer was. Certain cancers are known to recur later, uh, particularly, uh, for instance, breast cancer can recur many years uh, after the uh, original treatment. And so in that setting, uh, that would be uh, a possibility, although biopsies and and testing of the of the metastasis may may be able to confirm that or perhaps uh, suggest another diagnosis. Uh, on the other hand, other cancers such as uh, testicular cancer, uh, usually when it does not recur even after two years, it rarely, if ever, recurs after that. So it depends on the original cancer, but the approach of the patient should should be the same as we've discussed with the biopsy. Uh, careful pathology, and, and if necessary, additional genetic testing to, to come to a, a conclusion of what the cancer type is and whether it, in fact, uh, is a metastasis from the previous cancer or a new cancer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and our next com question comes from Rick. Recently advocated for a man with a retinal cancer who also has recurrent prostate cancer. Since a biopsy risks site, how do you determine the type of cancer and how to treat? Dr. Vratachari, could you address that question? And again, in a general way, because of course, um, and we hope that this will be helpful to you, Rick, in terms of your work. Sure, though I, I, I need uh, some more clarification. So the, is it a prostate biopsy, you said? It was uh, recently advocate for a man with a retinal cancer who also Retinal cancer. Who also has recurrent prostate cancer. Since the biopsy risk site, how do you determine the type of cancer and how to treat? This is one of our online questions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, very generally speaking, a lot depends on the biopsy results and uh, putting the tissue side by side to see what you're looking at. Usually, prostate biopsy, if that's what the question is, uh, it's, it's rare to get metastases to the prostate. Um, and, uh, you know, we our, um, we work with our GU team, we do a PSA, and um, sometimes there are cancers that start adjacent to the prostate and then get into the prostate. So a lot of it is very pathology-driven, and the doctor treating the patient needs to talk to the pathologist about the previous cancer histories and the current situation to be able to uh, make the diagnosis. So I'm not sure if it's an unknown primary. Um, could, could I add? Yes, so I, I think yeah. this is a case where the person has known prostate cancer and yes. a, a retinal tumor. So oftentimes the uh, retinal tumors are not biopsied uh, and can be treated with a localized therapy even without knowing the, the exact kind of cancer, what it is. But, you know, the important thing is to have them evaluated by someone who specializes in tumors of the eye. Excellent. That's an excellent point, Dr. Eaton. Thank you very much. Um, that's very important. I hope that will help you, Rick, in terms of, of thinking that through. Um, and um, um, very important. Thank you. Um, and our next question um, comes from one of our online participants. Um, I was originally diagnosed with melanoma. However, my doctor is now unsure where my cancer originated. Could this be cancer of unknown primary? Um, uh, Dr. Greco, do you want to address that? Okay. There, of course, you, you, a person can have melanoma of unknown primary site. Uh, this is a known entity. The pathologists know it's melanoma, but uh, where it came from is, is not known. Most melanoma comes from the skin, but it can come from other sites, including the eye and the gastrointestinal tract uh, and other areas. But if a patient has metastatic melanoma of unknown primary site, uh, they, in fact, have melanoma. Uh, and it behaves quite similarly to those who had a known primary site, and uh, you're dealing with basically metastatic melanoma. Thank you. 
And, and we have a, another question from one of our online participants um, from uh, Jane. Um, what tips or recommendations do you have to deal with the same, with some side effects of radiation I have been experiencing, including mouth sores and dry mouth? Dr. Eaton, could you address that? Yeah, so um, for, for radiation, you know, the, the good news about radiation is it usually ends. Um, and the, the, for the mouth sores, there, there is no clear best way to deal with that. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, people recommend uh, rinses and, uh, of various types, none of which have been proven to be better than the other. My advice is to just experiment and see which ones are best. There are topical anesthetic type things which can help briefly. Um, but the main thing that I will, and you know, sometimes the mouth sores are so bad that People, you know, when I'm treating patients for head and neck cancer, they need a feeding tube to help get them, get them through that. But um, as long as you can maintain adequate hydration, um, you can just be assured that eventually the mouth sores do get better. It's just kind of a matter of treating uh, the local symptoms and the pain oftentimes with uh, strong uh, pain medicines uh, and getting you through that, it, it will eventually heal. Excellent. Thank you. And um, another question from one of our online participants um, uh, from Jonathan. Should I have extensive testing to find out what kind of cancer of unknown primary cop I have? So Dr. Vratachari, um, could you again uh, kind of address this um, uh, for this particular in general for everyone to kind of understand this? Sure. Uh, we avoid extensive testing, but then that word in itself is, uh, uh, you know, difficult to gauge because uh, for one person an extensive test battery may be different from another, uh, another doctor. What we say is a focused search is the most important, which is definitely CAT scans, and then the rest of the test should depend on three things. One is the patient's symptoms. If there are specific symptoms that we need to evaluate beyond what the CAT scans are showing us, then we would do that test. The second is the pathology. If there's anything specific on the pathology, like if the pathology suggests that there could be something going on in the GI tract and CAT scans are not good for that, then we would do an upper or lower endoscopy, sometimes both based on the need. And the third is a specific blood test. If there's something on the blood test that suggests, again, that the CAT scans have not covered it, we may need to do additional tests. So we avoid extensive testing. Specifically, there are, you know, tests like bronchoscopies and ERCP, which are quite invasive, and we really learn more beyond some of the basic tests we do. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and another question from one of our online participants. Um, what are the chances um, that my cup will come back if initial treatment seems to be successful. What would you, what would we do if that happens, Dr. Greco? Could you address that? Yes. Um, usually, patients that have cup have metastatic cancer, which means they have spread of a cancer, and it's usually in more than one area. There are some patients, although not common, that seem to have just one area of involvement, and those patients can do well, uh, sometimes for years. So let's assume that that's what's occurred here, that the patient had CUP. They had, for instance, surgery and perhaps chemotherapy, maybe even radiation after the surgery with the chemotherapy, and they're doing well. And uh, it's still possible, of course, that, that that will recur even several years later. It might be if you knew the type of cancer it was, and again, we try to determine that in every cup patient, we would have a better idea of, of that possibility of recurrence. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, these are excellent questions, and I really appreciate our speakers addressing them, and we hope you'll take this information back to your treating healthcare team, of course. Um, and um, another question, um, are there any specific nutritional recommendations you could recommend? I have been having some difficulty with eating and mealtime while undergoing treatment. Um, Dr. Eaton, could you address that question? So it's, it, you know, what the optimal nutrition is uh, for a patient with cancer is very difficult to say uh, for a number of reasons. One is because every patient is different. The other is, is that in terms of the scientific evidence, we don't clearly have that. But for people that are, you know, it, and my general advice on this is to, when you can, eat, you know, what most people say would be a healthy diet, fruits, vegetables, a, a variety of different kinds of foods. 
Um, and um, but for people who have cancer, and oftentimes if you're getting treatment that affects the GI tract, it, it can be difficult to find uh, food that is appealing and is tolerated. Uh, so um, typically I say, uh, you know, for people who are losing weight, whatever food you can eat, that you should eat. For, for people um, who have difficulty with swallowing, um, blenderized foods or uh, supplements uh, can be helpful. Um, it, it really does make sense to meet uh, with a nutritionist if you can, if you're uh, losing weight and have uh, questions about uh, how to best try to gain it. But it can be a very frustrating thing. Thank you very much. So we do recommend that you also um, consult with a dietitian and a nutritionist for some help with this as well. That would be an excellent recommendation as well. But discuss it with your healthcare team, of course. And another question for Dr. Varatachari, is there a familial link for cancer of unknown primary? There is uh, some data on that, and there have been two recent published papers looking at large registries and trying to sort out the familial risk. It is um, difficult to really get a good feel for that because the the population in the registries are not just unknown primaries. They may be undetermined cancers or difficult to diagnose cancers. So I would say that um, it is possible that there are certain familial cancer syndromes, like patients who are at high risk for colon cancer, high risk for breast cancer, high risk for pancreas cancers. And in those families, a patient can present with an unknown primary. So you've got to go back and get the family history and see if the patient fits a family syndrome of a specific known cancer presenting as an unknown primary with that background profile. But if the question is, if one has an unknown primary, are you at risk for an unknown primary in a sibling or um, a relative, that is much harder to sort out. And I think the studies we've done so far do have limitations. Awesome. Thank you. And I'm going to ask everyone to weigh in on this one. It's a question that comes up on many of the programs we do, but I think it uh, helps people, I think, to hear from each of you um, on this one. Um, would you recommend patients seek a second opinion regarding a cup diagnosis, or is this diagnosis very cut and dry? So um, I, I'm going to actually start with Dr. Greco, if you could address this, and I'm going to ask everyone if you would just weigh in on it, because I think it's helpful for people to hear each of your voices on this one. Uh, Dr. Um, Greco? Well, I'll comment first on is it cut and dry, and it's, it's probably the furthest thing from that. It's, it's, uh, it's a complex clinical syndrome with, uh, where many cancers are representative, even though we call it CUP. It's not one cancer type, so it's quite complex. It's never wrong to, to, to have a second opinion, but this is an individual decision. You know, sometimes patients feel very comfortable with the physician they see, and if they do, there's no reason necessarily to have a second opinion. But but there's never anything wrong. There's never a time when it's wrong. And uh, if my patients want it, I encourage it and help help them receive it. Awesome, thank you, and Dr. Eaton. Yeah, I, I uh, Dr. Greco echoes my feelings almost exactly. You know. Uh, as a doctor, I always welcome it for patients. I think it can provide reassurance, uh, but uh, by no means is it necessary, and if people are comfortable uh, with it, and you know, sometimes the inconvenience can be, you know, uh, significant, you know, if patients live in an area where it's difficult to get a second opinion. So uh, that has to be weighed as well, but uh, I would never discourage someone from getting a second opinion, and these cases typically are complicated if it's being labeled as unknown primary. Dr. Prachachari, thank you. Uh, yes, I too would um, would agree. I agree with Dr. Greco and Dr. Eden's thoughts. Um, I think two situations where uh, it might help a patient uh, to discuss with their 
team whether a second opinion may be beneficial is when the pathology is just too vague and if uh, the patient's pathology needs to be um, reviewed elsewhere or another, another um, biopsy needs to get done. And if it's, it's a multidisciplinary uh, discussion where you have, you know, two, three different teams, surgery, chemotherapy, oncology, uh, radiation teams making this discussion. So if it's, if it's extremely complex and if the patient's uh, uh, medical team thinks the patient will also benefit from a second opinion, uh, you know, definitely that, that situation, um, it may be a good idea. And if Kelly, could you comment just in terms of the support groups and the counseling sessions where people struggle with these issues a lot and just have a psychosocial perspective if you'd want to comment on this? Absolutely. You know, I think a second opinion really gives you just another expert's opinion. It gives you possibly more information. I think one of the things, and I'm hoping that um, patients who are listening to the call are hearing this, that all three of these doctors um, have spoken about how they would never discourage someone from getting that, and I do hear that a lot. Patients have anxiety. You know, I'm afraid to, to bring it up. I'm afraid to ask my doctor about a second opinion. Never be afraid to ask them about it. It is just a part of care. Absolutely, your doctor will encourage you um, to get a second opinion. It may help you find uh, that other person to speak to. So I, I hope that everyone has heard that these doctors would encourage you, um, if it is your decision to get a second opinion, to do that. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have another question here. Um, Thank you all for actually weighing in on that question. It's important for everyone to hear that because it, it is something that um, I think, as Ms. Coley has said, people often feel uncomfortable sometimes asking about it. Um, and so to hear everybody say this, this consistent message is really important for you all to hear. Um, so there is um, a question here. Can a cancer of unknown primary be prevented or screened for? So Dr. Vrachachari, could you comment on that, please? Um. Given that it's really a group of cancers, and like Dr. Greco alluded to, and not one entity, it's really hard to screen for this or prevent a cancer of unknown primary. I would say that the um, uh, most important thing is to, um, you know, have good habits, um, regular screening tests that um, are necessary based on age and other recommendations. Uh, that's absolutely important. So there is no specific screening or other testing. And um, the other question really has to do with the availability of clinical trials and really um, are clinical trials available for um, people um, with, uh, with cancer of unknown primary? Um, so Dr. Greco, could you address that? Uh, yes, but not nearly uh, as many as you would expect from the uh, the uh, incidence of this this problem. Uh, there there are trials at, at at various centers, you know, that specialize in this area, and uh, probably the most interesting ones now uh, are are being done in many places. So-called match trials I alluded to when I spoke earlier. This is where patients have the genetic testing known as next-generation sequencing. And if they have a genetic abnormality that can be matched to a treatment that is known to perhaps block that abnormality, and by the way, we have these treatments for other known types of cancers, but even if we don't know what type of cancer they have, if they have that genetic abnormality, they can be entered on the, these matched trials. And the NCI has one, and now ASCO has one. So those are those will be available for cup patients as well as other solid tumor patients. And so, how um, would you recommend that people find out more about uh, trials and that might be available for them? Well, uh, I think uh, they should certainly consult their their oncologist, who who probably are going to be aware of these matched trials. I didn't mention, but there are other trials too, the immune stimulatory agents. Again, but these are usually institutional specific. We have such trials of, of the immunostimulatory drugs I mentioned that are so promising, useful in melanoma and lung cancer and kidney cancer and, and many others. Remarkable uh, beginning in immunotherapy, and we, we, and I think others have, or will have, and have trials for cup patients with those drugs. Excellent. Um, and um, um, there's another question, just in terms of, 
just coping with CUP because um, so few people maybe have heard of it and know about it. Um, this particular caller is saying, well, um, so how, how do they even tell their friends or family about this um, cancer of unknown primary? And so again, I'm going to ask everyone to kind of weigh in on that one because it's, it's sometimes a communication issue for people and how do they describe it because it may not be that well known. And when I think of our population on the call today from all over the United States and internationally, may have difficulty sometimes in discussing this with, with family. Um, Dr. Vratachari, could you would you like to begin that discussion? Yes. Um, yeah, I can understand uh, some frustration from families uh, um, given that uh, when you say the word unknown, it seems like you've just not done enough to find the cancer. So, um, you know, we do, we need to educate our patients who then need to go back and tell their families that it does exist as an entity. And um, uh, there are some websites, uh, not as many uh, as uh, for known cancers, uh, you know, if you use the the keywords, uh, those do come up, uh, uh, and um, there are um, uh, institution-based um, pamphlets, and um, also I think that ASCO has something that uh, is um, um, available to the doctors to share it with their patients. So um, patients do need to ask the doctors if they can get something from them to share it with their families. and. Uh, you know, we just need to reiterate that we need to create more awareness for unknown primary. It does exist as an entity. Thank you. And Dr. Eaton, do you want to comment on that? <laughs> the, 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 the statement that comes to mind, like from my kids, is they would say, it's a thing, Dad. <laughs> and um, so, you, you know, I, I think getting that awareness out there that this is something that, that doctors who know what they're doing uh, have recognized as a, that this exists as an entity that we uh, uh, classify certain cancers as being unknown and that we have uh, a body of knowledge and a way, uh, an approach to treat them. Um, it, is, it is in some ways, you know, uh, having the word unknown is, um, uh, makes it difficult because it, it, it implies that there is some way to know what it is, but we, we don't necessarily believe that. Sometimes I just call it a de-differentiated cancer. Uh, which just is another way of saying we don't know how to tell where it comes from. And, um, you know, like a lot of things, it just takes getting used to. But uh, from a um, kind of communication standpoint, it can be hard both from a doctor-patient relationship, but then in terms of patient to their wider community, um, it, 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 it's somehow not as satisfactory as labeling it as breast or lung or brain or whatever organ you think of it, the word unknown is somehow still unsatisfying there. Well, thank you. That's excellent. And, and Dr. Greco? Um... Yeah. Well, I would agree. I would agree with what's been said, but also would add, I think we're in, a, in an evolution now where this is changing substantially. Not, not the fact that we can't identify the primary site. That, that is remaining true. But we're identifying the type of cancer the patient has much more frequently. So once we do that, it sort of takes that unknown out of it considerably. It's still difficult. I mean, patients don't, don't feel a lot better about having advanced metastatic lung cancer just because we can label it. So having it, saying it's unknown makes it even worse, of course, as, as has, been, has been discussed already. But if one can determine the type of cancer now in most patients. Again, this is contentious and arguable, even, even amongst specialists, but in my opinion, based on hundreds of patients now, I believe in 90 plus percent of patients, we can tell them what type of cancer they have based on the information that I discussed earlier without getting into the details. Pathology, clinical presentation, molecular profiling, particularly molecular cancer classifiers. When we put all that together, in my opinion, I can tell patients 90 plus percent that they have a particular cancer type. Even though I'm not sure where it came from, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it's come from those places, but it's too small for me to prove. But it's still spread and it's still that cancer, so then I can tell them they have that cancer. Uh, of course, I tell them we can't find it, uh, but the the spread and the study of the spread tells us that's what it is. Excellent. Wow. And Ms. Kelly, do you want to add anything? It's been an amazing discussion. 
Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the things that I hear often from patients um, and from caregivers is a feeling of sort of not quite knowing where to belong, you know, what's my ribbon color, that type of thing. And I think to Dr. Greco's point, you know, um, if you can identify uh, the specific type of cancer, of course, and you can identify with that camp. Even if you can, I had one person who I worked with who was uh, uh, diagnosed with CUP, and they just used the purple color, you know, those types of things. And then really talking with the doctor, getting literature about it. I know uh, the American Cancer Society has a whole page dedicated to CUP. Um, there is an organization out there, and I learned this actually from a patient that I was working with, and it's called Joe's Friends. Um, they have an interactive forum. You can go on there. You can get information. And the website itself is www.cupfoundjoe.com which is jo.org, and that is just another resource for um, patients, uh, and I would say for caregivers who are feeling maybe a little bit more isolated due to the type of diagnosis. Excellent. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to thank all of you. This has been an extraordinary call, I have to say. Um, all of our participants have been, our uh, speakers have been outstanding, uh, really extraordinary. Our questions from our participants um, have been extraordinary, and um, I have to say that uh, um, you know, this is a call that we would love to be able to offer more frequently because it's an important call. It's an important topic. Um, and um, I want to thank you all for your time on the call. Now, I, do, I did tell you all that if you do have other questions, which I know many of you do have other questions, that I want to give you some information about how to get those questions answered. So let me do that right away. If you have any further medical questions, medically oriented questions, I do recommend that you go ahead and call the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Their information specialists are there. They often are there right after our calls. I mean, they're there all the time anyway, but they expect to get calls after um, our, our programs here at Cancer Care. So any of your medically focused questions about cancer by non-primary, I would suggest, obviously, you talk to your healthcare team, but also if you want to find another resource, the National Cancer Institute is an excellent resource. That's 1-800-422-6237. If you have any need for financial assistance, practical help, counseling, support groups, um, just want to talk with somebody about just how you're coping with um, cancer of unknown primary, any cancer, I would say to go ahead and call Cancer Care, and um, you can call us at 1-800-813-4673. Again, as we conclude the program today, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with cancer of unknown primary or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of this cancer care world, and we want you to know that we are here to help you. And we are simply a phone call away or visiting our website as well, just sort of a mouse click away from visiting us as well. So um, please do know that there are, we are here to help you. And I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.